I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with comedian Brooks Whelan from This American Life, Elna Baker, the co-host of the Racist Sandwich podcast, Zaheer John Muhammad, with music from Thundercat and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, full disclosure, he's been backstage pounding low-carb energy drinks, so we'll see how this goes, Luke Burbank! Wow. Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thank you, everybody here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We have got a fun and interesting show for you. Our theme this hour is full disclosure. And all of our guests have interacted with that idea in one way or another. Um, Full disclosure also seems like a principle that is not being applied at the highest levels of our government currently. Full disclosure, I told myself not to talk about politics on the show, and I made it about 18 seconds. Now, on the subject of full disclosure, I was thinking that it might be kind of nice at the top of the show uh, maybe if me and announcer Jason Rouse, yeah. if we sort of set uh, a precedent of radical honesty. What, do you want to confess something? Well, you have a- I, I learned something about myself this week, which I, I guess I feel comfortable disclosing uh, here, which is that I am unnaturally terrified of raccoons. I mean, I think it's a pretty natural thing to fear a raccoon, y- right? Yeah, but when you hear how not in danger I was from the raccoon. You may really rethink that. Okay. We were coming home from dinner last night, my wife and I, and we were pulling up to the house, and in the dark, a raccoon ran across the road and into our driveway. Yep. That would not be a big deal normally, but uh, yesterday was also garbage day, and I have a whole ritual where I get the empty garbage cans, I roll them up the driveway to the house. This is a very important ritual to me, because it is the only remotely manly thing that I do 
at any point during the week. Yeah. I can't fix anything, I can't build anything, but I can wheel the empty garbage and recycling bin uh-huh. up to the house. Yeah. Now, my wife could also do that, but I'm hoping she doesn't find that out because then I will have nothing. Yeah. So the plan was roll up to the garbage cans, I jump out, I get them, yeah. I do my thing. Now there's a raccoon in the mix. Yeah. And what I say to my wife is, hey, there's a raccoon out there, which was really my way of saying, please don't make me get out of the car. Yeah. Yeah. But she just heard it as, hey, there's a raccoon out there. Yeah. So she said, are you going to get out of the car and get the garbage cans? And I felt like I was really on the horns of a dilemma because I'm trying to impress upon her how manly I am. So not getting out of the car because of the raccoon, which, yeah. by the way, would be described as average to small. It was the size of a house cat. It, may, still, have been, oh. it may have been a house cat. I don't... <laughs> things got kind of blurry. But I was undoing whatever positive progress I was making in the manly department by not wanting to get out of the car. So I was trying to figure out what to do, and I got to this point where I was going to have to say to her, please don't make me get out of the car. There's a raccoon out there. But the raccoon went into our neighbor's yard behind a fence. So I had an opening. So I get out of the car, and I close the door, and I hear the auto locks on the car go like, it's just not her locking me out of the car. It's like set on too sensitive. Like as soon as the door shut, it locks itself. And she starts driving, and as soon as she clears the frame, the raccoon is back oh. in the driveway. And now it's me and the raccoon in the yeah. darkness of night. <laughs> yeah. And I hear a sound that I can't place. And I realize after a couple seconds that the sound is me screaming <laughs> the word babes to my wife. That's what I went with. Babes, Babes. as I smash on the window of the car that I'm running next to with my open palm of my hand. (laughs) And she stops the car, she unlocks it, I get back in and she goes, are you afraid of the raccoon? I'm like, no, it was like raining, I didn't want to get wet, whatever. So I played it off pretty well, I like to think. All right, let's get our first guest out here, you guys. What do you say? She is basically an expert at the art of full disclosure. Through her writing and performing, she has disclosed what it's like to be a virgin until the age of 28, what it's like to lose over 100 pounds and then live in a new body with lots of leftover skin, and recently in an amazing moment on the radio show This American Life, where she works, she even disclosed that she's still been secretly taking a Mexican diet drug called Fentermine. So yeah, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Please welcome the amazing Elna Baker to Livewire. Welcome to Livewire. Hi. Uh, You and I both came from very large, very religious families. Yes. And uh, you you were raised Mormon. Uh, Mormon. My family is all still Mormon. Five kids. Um, I came from evangelical Christian types. Seven kids. Not to one-up you. Or really... Two. (laughs) Two Two-up you, if we're counting. But 
It's, I think it's interesting because uh, I've really admired your work for a long time, and I feel a certain kinship. I feel like you and I both, for some reason, have no compunction about just airing our biz <laughs> in front of people. Do you think that has something to do with growing up like in a religious home with a bunch of kids? Yeah, I mean, Mormons basically have open mic at church, where every uh, first Sunday, anyone can get up and talk in church. And that was like basically from age seven, I was like workshopping my material on the audience. And I would get up and I would tell things that no one in my family knew. I would confess up there. I would make jokes. I was, yeah, it was. Because this was still supposed to be centered around your life and a religious experience, Yeah, right? I would add Jesus in at the very end, but right. mostly... Just to meet the minimum standard of this being a church event. Exactly. Oh, my God. Like, I didn't do exactly that. My version of that, though, was we would have a Bible study every week. I was a very little kid, but I was pretty talky, and I would sit there, and, like, these would be adults talking about the Bible, and then I would have what I thought were these, like, insanely important insights into the Bible... It was almost like Jesus came here to, like, help us, everybody. But because I was seven, they were humoring me. And I didn't realize until my adult life, looking back, that I would regularly talk for two to three hours at these Bible studies. I, if you really think about it, I was driving cross-country and heard, like, an evangelical station. And I was like, oh, this is how white dudes get to be creative. Like, that's what it is. It's all kind of made up and really imaginative. Right. Like extremely white freestyle rapping. Exactly. More or less. It is the original, yeah. Okay, but you were a Mormon into your adult life. How old were you when you ended up kind of moving away from that? I mean, I left when I was 28. Okay. Uh, how did your parents take that? Terribly. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of crying phone calls, and um, it's still, I think they still have hope. Like, they'll, every now and then my dad will be like, uh, you know, you know, you know. You know it's true. <laughs> it's always like vague, and I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> he remains hopeful that you will sort of return to yes. the fold, as it were. My parents, it's the only thing they really hope for in life is that their kids would stay in Christianity, and they are 0 for 7. Wow. And you, and you go home, and like you wish you could give them the gift of, of seeing the world the way that they see the world. I really mean that. Um, but... You know, that's just not how it is. But it's like, it's weird. And I know you've sort of written about this to kind of know that you're like permanently letting your family down, but you can't do anything about it. Yeah, nothing I ever do will be as good as giving them that. It, it's like the meatloaf song. <laughs> I would do anything for love, but I, I won't be Mormon. Um, that, was, that was the original version of that song. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints owned most of the radio stations in America, yeah. so they changed it because it wasn't going to get airplay. Yep. Do the people in your life, be it your husband or your, your other family members or friends, do they feel okay about how personal you get with your life, which, of course, brings them into the story as well? It's really tricky. I mean, I have this delusional idea of, like, maybe they'll never hear it, but... Uh... I, I do try to, when I tell stories, I try to make myself the person that I'm making fun of, at least, and, and to be honest. But, you know, when you're being honest, you're still filtering it through your eyes. So you're not accurately telling whatever they went through. It's all kind of, you know, it's all a lie. <laughs> this got bleak really fast. <laughs> Life is an illusion. There is no truth. 
uh, you're listening to Livewire Radio from PRI, and we are talking to Elna Baker. Another thing that you have become pretty well known for is the fact that you lost a significant amount of weight. Mm -hmm. And what I think is so interesting about how you've talked about that is it's not purely a story of like, I used to be fat and now I'm skinny and life rocks. <laughs> it's a story about how, um, how much you change and your experience with other people changes, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. And also, you had pictures posted of your excess skin after you lost all this weight, which I just thought was an incredibly brave thing to do. Was that um, a hard decision to make? It was, but honestly, I feel like I had this idea of what you look like after you lose weight based on literally everything I'd ever seen. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was not that thing, and I spent years feeling a lot of shame about that. And then you find out, like, oh, no, that's pretty much how it goes for everybody. Um, and so I felt comfortable putting that image of myself in, out in the world because I would have liked to have had a reference and um, I was capable of giving that reference. Do you get feedback online from people who, because uh, I mean, I think this is obviously a good thing. We're moving into an era where we have decided that there's lots of different ways for people's bodies to be mm -hmm. and that it's not just a given that somebody has to lose weight to be happy. And thank God, like, thank God we're moving into that era. Do people ever like hit you up online and, and feel like you're making them feel pressure to make the decisions that you made about your body? Uh, I think I try to reassure people that I'm not happy either. <laughs> <laughs> There's the Elna Baker we've come to know and love during this interview. <laughs> as long as everybody's sad. Um, you work on the show uh, This American Life, and there was a piece uh, that just absolutely stopped me. Dead in my tracks. It was so fascinating. It was, you were talking with your husband. You were asking him the question of if he thought that he would have been interested in you if you were Elna Baker of your previous size. It was like one of the realest moments of radio that I've heard in a long time. Was that scary for you? To put that out there? Well, first of all, to ask the question and record it, like you didn't know what the answer was going to be, right? Well, the recording actually, I w it wasn't meant to be a part of the piece. So it wasn't, I didn't come into the recording to ask him if he would have loved me uh, if I was fat. And then he said that he, w well, he said he wouldn't have, <laughs> uh, essentially. Uh, and it was devastating. Uh, and I went back and talked to him a few times. And it's a really painful thing to try to unravel uh, your ideas about love as a person especially being Mormon, but you have sort of a Disney princess fantastical idea about true love. And uh, the fact that the way someone looks plays a big part of that isn't how I had conceived of, of love. Was that a moment where you just sort of wished you would have had less disclosure? <laughs> like, honestly, did you regret asking that question? Because you can't unknow that. Yes, I do regret asking that question. And... Uh, yeah, you can't unknow it. And, I, you know, it had an impact on our relationship for several months. And we were able to, like, talk it through and work through it. But I think even the way I asked the question, I, I didn't ask it as a question. I posed, like, you wouldn't have loved me if we'd met when I was heavy or whatever I said. And the way I posed it, it was as if I, I knew this deep down. And so... 
to get confirmation of your worst fears is actually somewhat, it's a relief in a way. It's not fun, but you don't have to hold the fear anymore. Wow. See, I have been following the opposite approach by never looking at the comment section of the Livewire <laughs> radio show page to exactly avoid having my fears confirmed. That's not even a joke. You're saying that there's something cathartic about it. Yeah. Well, I got some reading to do tonight, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Elna Baker, everybody, Thanks. right here on Livewire. All right, our theme this week on the show is full disclosure. And uh, in the interest of that, we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater to uh, answer the question, what would their warning label say? Uh, listener Jenna said uh, her warning label would say, loves Motley Crue unironically. Bless her. Yeah, this, this is in keeping with my notion of Portland. What would your warning label say? Francois, just the fact that his name's Francois yeah. is like, Halfway home on this. Warning, beard bristles. No comment. I'm going to let that one go. And uh, Laura says her warning label would say, punctuation is never optional. Emojis are. Wow. Yeah. And here's what I have to say about Laura's card she submitted, she walks the walk. After punctuation is never optional, she uses a semicolon. I've never seen a semicolon properly yeah. used in my life. I've never used one for that specific point. This week's show is brought to you by Amtrak, connecting travelers to over 500 destinations like Los Angeles, the Bay Area, Portland and Seattle, downtown to downtown by way of the Coast Starlight. See where the train can take you. Details and reservations at Amtrak.com. This is Live Wire Radio, coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Our theme this week is full disclosure. And our next guest had to disclose something to his friends and associates at some point. And that was that the lemon bars that he loved making and bringing to get-togethers were not an ancient family recipe transported from India. He got the recipe from Google. But... This got Zahir John Muhammad thinking about the intersection of food and race and the assumptions that we make about both. He ended up starting a podcast on the subject called The Racist Sandwich Podcast, which has been growing in popularity and was recently cited as one of the best podcasts in America for the culinary arts. Please welcome Zahir John Muhammad to Livewire. So here, welcome to Livewire. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. How are you doing? Uh, I've been enjoying the podcast. Um, I, I feel bad asking you about it because it must come up in every interview. But please explain the origin of the name The Racist Sandwich. Sure. Yeah, it's actually a true story. So there was a, a school forum here in Portland where a school principal named Vernice Gutierrez uh, tried to make an analogy about school curriculum. She said, if a school is predominantly Latino, then maybe you serve torta instead of, let's say, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And that got covered, and then next thing you know, 
know, these conservative bloggers uh, started saying that she's calling the peanut butter and jelly sandwich racist. So till this day, if you Google racist sandwich, we actually don't come up first. It's still that story about, about the peanut principal. butter and jelly. And the poor principal ended up leaving Portland. She moved to Texas. And so uh, when we were coming up with a podcast name, I was like, you know, racist sandwich. It sort of sh- captures how silly we get sometimes when we talk about race. The problem is, look, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich is not racist. It just got made in a different time. It just doesn't yeah. see the world. <laughs> no, Wait, totally, I'm describing exactly. my grandpa. Um, <laughs> What are some of the ways that food and race intersect and also are subject to certain assumptions that like you wouldn't have thought of before you started doing this podcast and really looking into it? Sure. So um, I've never worked in a kitchen before. And so about a year ago, I met my co-host Soleil Ho, who's a Vietnamese American chef, and she was running a restaurant here. And um, oftentimes people would come in and say, wow, this is great food. Uh, Please have the chef come out. I want to compliment the chef. And they would say, hmm, like they'd be surprised. Like here's this Asian American woman cooking like incredible Southern food. And they would just make this assumption that A, because she's a woman or B, because she's Asian American, that she won't be cooking this food. But, you know, she lived in New Orleans. She lived in various cities in the South. So I think for me, that's been surprising. I, I, I knew that these issues existed, but to see it up close, the assumptions that we make about food, that some, you know, we have this hyper-masculine idea of the chef with tattoos and is on the show. But then also the idea that here in Portland, which is a wonderful city and there's wonderful food here, but we oftentimes don't hear the stories of people behind the food. So we have so many Thai restaurants here. Uh, many of them are amazing. But we don't really have a conversation about what's it like to be Thai American in, in Portland. And so we thought, well, why don't we just fill that gap and have that conversation? Um, I know also that you, you talk about your experience as a person of color in Portland, a city that is very proud of itself yeah. over how progressive it is. Yeah. But that your experience as a person of color does not always square with that feeling of self that people have in Portland, at least a lot of people in Portland. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that comes up again and again. Um, I think sometimes when we have discussions of race, they sort of feel like, like you're eating like broccoli or something, and they feel like too pedantic. We, with it, we said, like, why don't we just make it fun, and why don't we, we talk about food and, and wine and beer, but then also this, to try to bring some texture into, like, you know, what's it like, let's say, being the first black winemaker? And he was actually our first guest on the show where, you know, again, same thing. People go to his winery and they just assume this big black guy isn't the one actually making the wine. We have the sense of some, you know, someone in Napa who maybe comes from a lineage of, you know, winemakers. And here's this guy, Bertoni, you know, big black guy, uh, rides a motorcycle, has got tattoos. He listens to hip hop you know, serves plantains, and it sort of challenges our assumption of what does a winemaker look like. And so, um, as, you know, as a writer, I thought, that's, that's a great story. That's something I haven't heard. Maybe it'll invite us to look at Portland and Oregon in a new way. Uh, we're talking to Zahir John Mohammed. He is uh, the co-host of the Racist Sandwich podcast, which comes from right here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, one last thing before we, we have to let you go. I was fascinated uh, to hear some of the theories on the pricing of food and oh. what that reflects about uh, about our, I don't know if you'd say how we value a culture, but certainly how we perceive a culture. Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that 
it's been really fun on the show is this internal conversation that we of people of color have, like this idea that why do we assume, let's say, a shawarma, a Middle Eastern shawarma should be cheap, or a banh mi sandwich should be cheap. Uh, if a chef could make a banh mi sandwich and maybe charge $20, then you know they could really elevate a lot of the ingredients, and they could really use more refined things. But we have this notion, even like my parents, when we go out to dinner, uh, if we go out for Indian food, they'll always complain that there's, it's too much money. But when we go out for seafood or Italian food, they'll never complain that $100 for five people. But uh, Indian food, my parents are always like, no, no, that's too expensive. So I think it's also for us as people of color, we have to value our own food and our own traditions. And so as, mu as much as we're sort of criticizing sort of the white gaze, we're also criticizing our own internalized notions of our own worth. Uh, you now, uh, as the host of a, a food podcast or a, a culinary podcast, you're probably under a certain amount of pressure to really live the lifestyle uh, <laughs> of eating good food and all that. Do you like? Do you regularly consume anything that people would be shocked to hear the host of a culinary podcast likes? Let's see. Well, I was just talking to my partner. I, I think in my refrigerator I have a lot of ingredients from the seven banned countries from this administration. <laughs> So, um, if anyone wants to come over, I'm happy to make you a dish from one of these seven banned countries. Um, so, yeah. I, uh, it's my, my little way of resistance, I guess. I, yeah. wish, it was something, I wish it was something more noble, but that's I how I resist. I appreciate the, the invite. I don't want to be there when the drone strike happens. Know, that's true. <laughs> Sounds like a dangerous sandwich. Zaheer so John Muhammad, everybody, from the Racist Sandwich Podcast. If you're listening to the show on the radio right now, you may or may not be aware, but when I'm hosting Livewire up on this stage, I'm actually doing it behind a sit-stand desk. And it is a sit-stand desk that comes to us from Fully, which is a longtime sponsor of Livewire, formerly known as Ergo Depot. They have changed their name, but it's the same people, the same values, and the same purpose. Fully makes and sells desks, chairs, and things that are designed to keep us moving so we can be more fully in our bodies, more fully engaged, and more fully ourselves. Learn more over at fully.com slash livewire. This is Livewire Radio. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. This week, our theme is full disclosure. And our next guest is a stand-up comic who's made a name for himself by telling jokes that are super funny and super honest about real things in his life, like getting fired from Saturday Night Live or why his engagement didn't work out or even that time his dad murdered a possum right in front of him, <laughs> scarring him for life. Please welcome the incredibly hilarious, the incredibly honest, Brooks Whelan to Livewire. All right. Cool. So, I just, I did fly to Portland today from New York City, which I used to live in. I left at one. Um, New York is odd in the fact that it's the only city that's proud of how awful it is, you know? Like, the slogan itself is like, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Like, that's just basically saying like, it's gonna be really hard. <laughs> you will not believe how much it sucks. <laughs> like, if you can try that, if you do this, imagine St. Louis, that's all we mean, like. And they even have slogans. Their slogan is like, the city that never sleeps. And they tell you that, 
like that, you, that should be a secret. That's insomnia, you know? Like that's a disease people take pills for, you know? Like put that in any other context. It's not a positive. If you were at a party and someone's like, hey, heads up, my friend Dylan's coming over. Um, just so you know, Dylan doesn't sleep. You wouldn't be like, oh, heck yeah. Let's get Dylan's weird ass over here. No way if I look at him wrong, he won't knife me. I grew up in Iowa. I grew up poor. I didn't know I grew up poor, though. I had no idea because I grew up in a meth town. But you don't, when you grow up in a meth town, no one tells you that. No one is like, hey, dude, this is a meth town. Like, when you grow up in a meth town, you just think as a child, sometimes houses blow up. That's just part of your life. You're like, and you're like, why did that house blow up? And your mom's like, well, the sun was out a little too long today. And you're like, confused forever. But I thought we were rich. I thought we grew up rich just because we were meth town rich. You know what I mean? Like our house never blew up. So I was like, somebody's got money, you know, like anti-blow up money. You find out how poor you grew up with how late in life you discover Red Lobster's not the fanciest restaurant in the world. Some people are like, what did he say? <laughs> it's a great restaurant. I love Red Lobster. I really enjoy it. It's the Applebee's of the sea, though. It is honestly, <laughs> if you compare prices, app to app, you know, entree to entree, similar. Yet a delight. I'm not, gonna, I'm not talking bad about it. I just thought it was as fancy as you could get. I had no idea. I was 29 years old the day I found out Red Lobster was in a fancy restaurant. I'm just saying, I went to Times Square with some of my friends to be stupid, and we were having a good time being stupid by going to like the M&M store and being like, <laughs> look at all the colors, they taste the same. Like, and then we left the M&M store, and, uh, and my friend was like, oh, dudes, there's, let's go to Red Lobster. There's a Red Lobster right there. And I was like, okay, we wish. Uh, I hate to break it to you guys, but I got shorts on, so. They are not letting us in. Also, who got good grades? The reason I had to leave New York was because I drank too much, because it stays open too late. I wish, it, weed's legal in Oregon now, right? Yeah, it's great. I wish I smoked it more. I do, I'm not good at it, but I wish I did it. I wish I was a weed guy, but I'm not. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a alcohol guy. I love booze, which sucks. No, no applause, it's a bad thing. Like, I get drunk and I make mistakes. You know what I mean? Like, it used to be when you would get drunk, the only people who knew you were drunk were in that room with you, you know? Like, that was it. But now, because of Twitter, everybody gets to know I'm drunk, you know? Like, <laughs> I'll just get drunk and then wake up in the morning and have to look at my phone nervous. You know what I mean? Like, oh, what'd we get into last night? Like, oh, we tweeted angry things at Julia Louia Dreyfus? Why? You said no one loves Old Navy that much? Oh, come on. I got drunk one time, got mad at her Old Navy campaign. I was like, you got a lane money. Like, what are you doing? Like, you don't need to do this. 
I had to wake up and delete tweets. You ever, like, like I wake up and look at, I texted an ex-girlfriend, like, I love you. And I'm like, no, I don't. Oh, if I delete it from my phone, it deletes from hers. We need to believe that, you know, like. <laughs> but when I get stoned, I don't have any of those problems in the morning. Because when it's stoned, I look at my phone in the moment and just think, that's where the government is. And I stay away from it. <laughs> um, I guess that's my time for stand-up. Thank you guys very much. Brooks Whelan, ladies and gentlemen, right here on Livewire. Um, that was awkward. That felt awkward to you? A little bit. So it's, it's weird to do stand-up comedy in a variety show, because it's so look at me versus everyone else is doing something important. Well, we think what you do is important, Brooks. Oh, that's very kind of you. Um, Thank you. But I am struck by the notion that you would be worried about this environment, because obviously when you're cutting your teeth in stand-up, you have to have so many gigs where there's not a lot of people or people oh, aren't there to see comedy. You're terrible for about five to six years. Yeah. <laughs> All stand-up is is brushing off bad gigs. It takes a while to learn how to do that. Do you have a, a memory of one that you couldn't brush off in your younger days? Um, hmm. I don't know. Uh... I mean, I've had some bad gigs, uh, but the worst wasn't even in my younger days. I got booed off. I opened for Ludacris one time. The rapper. The rapper uh, at the University of Florida. And uh, I went on after another. I, it was this band, Foster the People. Uh, great band. Uh, then fireworks in the sky. <laughs> which signified to the 17,000 people, probably Ludacris was next. Um, <laughs> Nope. Old Brooks was coming up there to talk about Furbies for a little bit. And uh, they, were, they really felt like I was uh, keeping him off stage. So they booed me off. That was, uh, that was a little traumatic. When do you know... By the way, this is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to comedian Brooks Whelan. Occasionally opens for Ludacris. At what point do you realize that the booze now mean it's time to leave the stage. Because I would imagine there's the beginning of the booze where you think, okay, I got this, I can get them back. Like, no, how do you know when it's time to go? Once booze start happening, you're done. <laughs> and I'll also say it's the only time I've ever been openly booed. Uh, booing is weird. Like, booing is a 1940s thing. Like, in 2017, you would be like, don't boo him, he's trying. You know, like, right. like it wasn't like I was up there telling everybody to shut up and I hated them, you know? Like, I was up there being like, so I used to have a Furby and the Furby was weird, you know? And then they were like, I hate this guy! Like, uh, but I was contractually obligated to do a certain amount of time and was being paid a stupid amount of money. Um, so were you looking at some kind of countdown clock on the side of the stage? I was supposed to do 30 minutes. Yeah. And a girl walked out from behind me about eight minutes in and just said, you can stop now. Oh. <laughs> and I said, you got it. <laughs> and then I wanted to leave. I go I, to, the, to the ride I had there. Some college kids had given me a ride. And I was like, can you guys give me a lift home? They're like, we kind of wanted to see Ludacris. <laughs> you may have uh, heard our booze. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Brooks. So I stayed and watched Ludacris. He was fantastic. <laughs> I bet he was. I would have booed me too. I'd be like, this guy, oh. Um, I didn't know this until I was doing a little recon on you this week, but you actually studied biomedical engineering in college, which seems like an interesting preparation for a life in comedy. Sure. 
Yeah, I did. I was a biomedical engineer for four years in uh, Los Angeles until I got on that uh, show Saturday Night Live. Like, I did that. I got the call. And Saturday Night Live, I have not heard of it. Is it's, it a new show? I mean, it's whatever. <laughs> to me personally. Uh, it's like an ex-girlfriend that I'm like, is she still out there? But I know she is. You know, like. <laughs> well, let me just, for, for folks that are unfamiliar, uh, you, you were hired by Saturday Night Live. You worked there for a while. Then eventually they didn't have you back, which happens to many, many, many people who get on the show. But for sure. some reason, it seems like maybe it was because how you handled it. You sent out kind of a funny tweet about getting fired. Yeah. Why is that so associated with you? Because first of all, it's amazing to get on Saturday Night Live for any reason ever. Mm. And then second of all, you're not... I mean, I know everybody on it. <laughs> Once you're surrounded by everyone on it, it really takes the magic away. <laughs> you're like, whoa, everybody? Like, oh, it's not that hard to get on here if all these guys did it. Like, very talented people and my friends, but it's like any field, you know? You're like, oh, I can't... Like, before Trump, could you imagine getting to be president? No. And now you're like, he can do it? You know, like... <laughs> That's how I felt once I got on Saturday Night Live. It was like, if I can do it, it's not that hard. Like, it, well, it takes the mystique away once you do it. May his reign last roughly as long as your time at SNL. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, I, um, I, I really hope so. We were, as we were uh, looking into your past and, and various experiences this week, we, we saw that the, you kind of, you found yourself in a tight spot once when you were trying to board a plane with your own supply of Keystone Light beers. Oh, yeah. I had a bet with Seth Meyers. He was the head writer and my boss. And I, I went to University of Iowa and he went to Northwestern and we bet one time, beer is over, who would win Iowa or Northwestern in a football game. And Iowa won um, and Seth forgot. And I, it, I was not in a place to be like, yo, Sethy. Was my, where's my beer, baby? You know, like, I just let him forget and never brought it up because uh, he was my boss and he scared me. And, um, but then when my album came out, he's, he's one of the kindest people in the world. Uh, he let me go on his show and promote it. And then in the, at the show, he gave me Keystone Lights as a way to make up for it because um, he remembered. And then I forgot that I had him because I had to rush back to L.A. And I tried to take six Keystone Lights through security to Los Angeles. You know whenever they take your bag and they're like, we're going to have to check it, and you're like, I, I'm pretty sure I don't have drugs in there. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, 99%? She showed me it was Keystones. I was like, okay, that's fine. I don't have no... Yeah. Well, you managed, you managed to, I assume, still board the plane. You were able to talk yourself out of that one, which I have to say is a very useful skill in this world, talking yourself out of trouble. And yep. we thought it was a skill that you might be able to share with our listeners. So we put a little segment together we wanted your help with. We're calling it Brooks Wheelin, You Fast Talker. Oh, no. We're doing fast talking. Okay. Livewire house right. band, ladies and gentlemen. What a delightful house band, by the way. What a delightful show. Thanks for having me on. So here's what we have, Brooks Whelan. We have a, a list of hypothetical scenarios where laws have been broken. These are real laws. Okay. And you will have to talk your way out okay. of having broken these laws. All right. Since we were just talking about Keystone Lights, let us say that you have been caught giving a beer to a moose in Alaska. Which is illegal under Alaska law? 
uh, I thought that that was a mascot. I thought that was too, I thought that was too of age people. What about you find yourself in Pennsylvania and you're trying to catch fish with your mouth? I'm at Illegal. a sushi restaurant and they just don't have doors. You're way better at this than I thought. Yeah. What would you do? How would you talk your way out of this situation? You have been witnessed in public in the state of New Mexico singing only the first half of New Mexico's anthem, which is technically illegal. I would say you cut me off. (laughs) All right, and this is the last one. For this one, the stakes... That might be the funniest thing I've ever said. (laughs) You want to give one more a shot? This is my favorite thing I've ever done. (laughs) This one, the implications are pretty huge. This one involves God. There's actual footage of you allowing cattle to graze with other types of cattle. Clearly prohibited in Leviticus 19.19. What do you do? What state am I in? (laughs) The Gaza Strip. Well, I would say that's the least of my problems right now. <laughs> Brooks Wheelan, ladies and gentlemen. Thank fast talking. Fast talking. Fast talking. You could learn from this man. All right, you're listening to Livewire Radio, coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland. Mm-hmm. Our theme this hour has been full disclosure. And we asked the audience what their warning label would say. And uh, we've been going through some of them. Listener Jody says that their warning label would say, don't bring up Tony Robbins. That could go for a lot of people, I think. Um, Nancy said her warning label would say, I'm a former middle school principal and I know when you are lying. And... Last but not least, uh, Matt, who's here with us, says his warning label would say, contents may have settled. (laughs) I heard that. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical, un-Alaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. Alaska Airlines, fly nice. All right, our musical guest this hour, Thundercat, is a Grammy Award. Oh, oh, I see. You've heard that Thundercat is a Grammy Award winner whose career is impossible to try to describe in just a few sentences. For instance, he was in the band Suicidal Tendencies, but he's also recently been collaborating with Kenny Loggins and Michael McDonald. He's also worked with Kendrick Lamar on the incredible album To Pimp a Butterfly, which came out in 2015. His latest album, Drunk, is out now, and it is featuring, among others, a song called Friend Zone that he released on Valentine's Day. Please welcome Thundercat to Livewire. Thank How you. old were you the first time you picked up a bass? Um, I don't know. I want to say four or five. 
That seems like an unlikely instrument for like a little, little kid to pick up. I don't know, just maybe I've always been anti. <laughs> you feel like all those other poser four-year-olds were getting on the guitar and the drums. You're like, let me swerve on that. Yeah, you know, just, I mean, well, I grew up in a household full of drummers. So it was like, I'm going to play bass. I was like, I'm not going to play drums. <laughs> it was just opposite immediately. You've played in different bands and you've done amazing, uh, you know, solo work and stuff like that. Are you in a different emotional place if you were playing, let's say, in Suicidal Tendencies, which you did, as opposed to you and Michael McDonald are collaborating? <laughs> uh, like, is that a di- like? Do those feel different when you're when you're playing? With- no, I mean, I know that's that's a, that's an interesting concept, but um, you know, having spent a long time even with Mike Muir and getting a chance to understand like what. It was the spirit behind what he did, you know. That's the guy from Suicidal Tendencies. Yeah, yeah. For the public radio listeners that are unfamiliar. Yeah, that's the lead singer <laughs> of Suicidal Tendencies, Mike Muir. You know, I felt like the, the, the similar energy, you know, in the sense of uh, just all around creative. Because even for punk, that was like genuinely a statement. And people didn't know what to do with that back then either. You know, it's like all of a sudden it was a thing and then it was dead. And people couldn't wait to be like, punk is dead. You know, it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's just like... This same creative energy, like the feeling of like, wow, wanting to push out further. I felt like that with Suicidal and with Michael and Kenny. What is it like when white lightning comes into the studio and just starts <laughs> playing man, along? I mean, does that kind of blow your mind a little bit? Man, I had this feeling about Mike that he always knew where a sandwich was. <laughs> Michael McDonald? And lo and behold, the first thing he said to me, he's like, there's a sandwich in the fridge. Wait, though. Did he say, like, or he's like, it's right behind the Evian bottle. Yeah. yeah, he said it in his voice. That's just, is that how he talks? And I was just, I just sat there, and I was like, I was with my girlfriend at the time, and I just <laughs> looked at her, and I was like, he did it. He just did it. He did it. You saw it. You know. Yeah. Uh, can we hear a song? Sure. All right.
That's Thundercat right here on Livewire Radio. Wow. All right, we got to get out of here, but let's tell you who helped make this show possible. Thanks to our guests, Elna Baker, Brooks Whelan, Zaheer John Muhammad, and Thundercat. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Amtrak, and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Becky Fogel is our associate producer. Jason Rouse is our announcer. Hannah Withers was our guest writer for this show. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. D. Neil Blake does our house sound and our recording. Thanks to Carlson Audio. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Hardin is our marketing director. Our operations manager is Diana Dawson. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the support of our members. This week, big thanks to Corey Zanin of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Robert Peacock of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show, head over to livewireradio.org. My name's Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. R.I. Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.